So John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. This is God's word. As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. It's God's word. Um, We're going to return to that in a few moments and some of the verses after, which I've um, put on your sheets as well. Um, And and, and really, we're going to be looking at this episode here of this man who uh, was healed. And uh, he went from being blind from birth to seeing. And yet what we're going to be doing, I think, if anything, is, is focusing on the bit that happens afterwards, you know, after a game of uh, football, um, there's a, often a post-match phone-in, you know, where people come and uh, express their views and the pundits uh, give their opinions. And so in some ways, that's what we're looking at this morning. It's, it's, the, it's the reaction to the big event. Uh, the big event we've just read together is this life-changing episode, this encounter uh, with Jesus that this man who was blind from birth has just had with him. And he does play, obviously, a key role in the whole thing. Every, every encounter with Jesus is life-changing. If, if you have some knowledge of Jesus or have some sort of experience in the past, but that's where it remains in the past, you haven't really encountered the real Jesus. You've maybe heard of him or, or seen him from afar, but he will change your life when you come to him. Uh, this man who was born blind, that's the key, he was born blind, blind from birth, was considered to be cursed, or that there's something wrong with him, there's some moral problem with him um, that has led to his blindness. You know, the, the, the thinking in those days um, was that this sort of disability um, as it was as a result of some moral failure, some sin or other. And so the disciples asked the question that many would have thought about um, when they looked at this, this blind man, who sins? Clearly, clearly someone screwed up, right? Either him or, or his parents, you know, which one was it? Who's at fault? And Jesus says, um, neither. Strange answer in verse 3. Not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he goes on to explain that, that we must work the works of God, which are light to the world. Um, so so uh, let me show you, says Jesus, what I mean. By doing the works of God, I'm bringing light to the world in so doing. And so he says, it says in verse 6, Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva, kind of like a, a mud paste saliva thing, kind of disgusting, but uh, you know what? That's what he did. And uh, this sort of warm, I suppose, paste or mixture was then put on this man's eyes. It says he anointed this man's eyes. And then he instructed him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went, he obeyed, he washed, and he came back seeing. His, his eyes, if you like, went from being dark to being light. 
uh, from, from blindness to seeing. From, from the dust, there came life. That's what happened. And do you notice, though, the tenderness with which Jesus treats this man who was widely condemned, thought to have been so sinful that he's blind or, or come from such terrible background that he is blind. Jesus teaches, uh, sorry, he treats him with such, such tenderness. He, he doesn't consider this man to be a sinner or a, a, a bad person. He doesn't treat him with revulsion like the religious leaders do. We'll see that in a few moments. He treats this man with dignity and with love. Don't forget, a word from Jesus would have done the trick. Jesus spoke to the wind and the waves and said, peace be still, and they were still. So we know that Jesus can, can speak a word and it is done. But there's something about making this little mud potion and putting it on this man's eyes that he could feel, if you like, Jesus. He couldn't see him, but he could feel him. He could experience it. There was something, that, that was for the benefit of the blind man, by the way. It wasn't necessary for Jesus to do that to, to create the healing. It was necessary for the blind man to experience Jesus in these profound and healing ways. Go and wash, he said, after he'd covered his eyes in this stuff. And he obeyed Jesus. He trusted Jesus. And off he went. And he was restored. So Jesus brings sight to the blind. And that's going to be, I suppose, our, our theme for this morning, for this, this, the, the big event. Jesus brings sight to the blind. Um, but we're going to be looking, as I say, and, and, and examining, I think, this uh, from three different angles. This is like the post-match um, interview. This is the post-match debate. And we're going to be seeing, I suppose, three reasons why people would look at Jesus and reject him. Or he would sort of hear the story and think, no, that's not, that's not for me. Three reasons why people would reject the works of Jesus or Jesus himself. Why would, you know, for, I suppose from our purposes, why would people reject Christianity, the, the Christian faith? Three groups of people. And maybe you find yourself fitting into one of these groups, or maybe you know someone who does. These are the three groups, the skeptic, the self-righteous, and the scared. These are the three reasons people reject Jesus. The skeptic, first of all, let's read in, in, back on your sheet in verses 8 and 9. It says here, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept on saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how your eyes opened? He said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go and wash. And I recovered my sight. These neighbors have seen this man before, it says. They are, I suppose, associates. They're familiar with him, you know, contacts, we might say. Um, those people that are in your phone that, um, you know, you've maybe messaged once or twice and they just stay there uh, in your phone contact list. Um, they are familiar with him. Uh, and yet, and yet as, the, as the discussion sort of takes place, you can see here, they're, they're, they're just doubting this really him, you know. Uh, deny, surely this can't be him. This must be someone who looks like him, but it's not actually him. You know, we're being sort of deceived here. There must be a logical explanation for what's happened, that this can't be the guy. I mean, this is not how the world works. This is what they would be thinking. People don't just suddenly go from being blind to, to seeing. 
These things just don't happen. You see, for this group of people, we'll call them, for our purposes, the skeptics, um, they couldn't believe in Jesus. They just couldn't believe in Jesus. They are presented with some facts. They are presented with the data, if you like, but they could not accept that it was true. Must be someone else. We must be mis- there must be some explanation for this. And, and I think uh, when, you, when, you, when you delve into the history of the church over the last 2,000 years, and uh, there have been various attempts uh, to explain away the, the, the central convictions, the central truth claims of historic Christianity. Uh, and, and so just in summary, things like this would have been said and written and debated over the, over the years. Things like, well, Jesus didn't really exist. He, he's not a real person. He's not a historic person. He's a, he's a nice idea. Or others have, have argued that Jesus wasn't the man that we now understand him to be. That at the time he was just a regular teacher, he was a, a roving sort of prophet. And as time has gone on, more and more sort of amazing claims have been added to him as the myth has, has developed. That's some of the things that people have claimed. Others would look at the, the miraculous signs that were done and say, well, he didn't really walk on water. He, he, there was obviously like a, a, a sandbar. And, and that's what he was walking along when, when he went out to the disciples on the boats in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, those famous sandbars that don't exist. <coughs> Others would say, well, he didn't really die on the cross, for example. Um, he sort of fainted and then came to a few days later and everyone sort of chalked that up to some sort of resurrection from the dead this didn't happen either in fact others have argued that jesus actually did die he went into the grave never came out but but people had this sort of mass delusion that he somehow was resurrected in their hearts and that's where the story began and so forth um all these ideas have 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 had their day and have quite frankly fallen away um none of them have stuck but that's sort of what we're seeing here in verses eight and nine this can't be true I can't accept what seems to be the plain and obvious teaching here. And I think this can be today for us a major reason why many, not all, but many would reject Christianity. It's a pile of hocus-pocus. Um, and, and, and people these days can watch a Discovery Channel documentary. Um, and uh, you know, that's it. My mind has been made up. This whole thing has been debunked. It's a pile of rubbish. You might maybe find something on uh, YouTube or whatever. Uh, you know, and we'll just reject everything out of hand. The supernatural, the extraordinary, just can't happen. It hasn't happened in my experience. No one has ever seen this before with their own eyes, so therefore it cannot be true. And I suppose the, 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 the claim of the Christian faith um, from, from the moment of Christ up until now is that that's exactly the point. This is so unusual. This is so rare. It's only happened once. But even if something only happens once, and even if it's highly unusual, that's what makes it such a big deal. Um, And and I think that many people who probably dismiss Christianity uh, because they just say it's a whole pile of rubbish, just simply often lack the information to make an informed decision about Christianity. Um, And and, and I think that... um, Lots of people are happy to maybe make assertions or sort of second-hand comments, um, but they haven't really seriously looked it up. They haven't seriously done the hard work. Um, I, I, I think it's perfectly okay. I wish people didn't, but I think it's okay to reject Christianity if you've taken a good hard look at it. 
and you've examined it and you understand Christianity on its own terms. If you've done that and you, you still come to the conclusion that it's, that it's not, not right or not for you, that's, that's your choice. You're free to make that, absolutely. But I think that most people um, don't do the hard work. They don't actually read the words of Jesus and his apostles and, and, and give it some serious thought. So I suppose if that's you, if you're, if you're, if you're in that sort of category, uh, if you like, of the, the skeptic, my, my challenge, my encouragement to you is, is have you read the Bible? Or have you read the New Testament? Let's, let's, let's go there first. Have you read the Bible? Have you read the gospel accounts? And have you read the Bible on, uh, judging by its own standards and its, uh, in its own setting, its own context? Have you honestly and authentically examined the truth claims of the Christian gospel? Um, and maybe for you, you would, you would need to uh, sit down and find yourself a Christian friend or someone sat here today um, and, uh, and, and just have a, have, a, have a coffee with them or, or a chat or whatever it is and, and, and actually ask them some difficult questions. And, and maybe that's what you need to do. Um, maybe you need to uh, meet with that person. Um, but I suppose the bottom line that I'm trying to get across this morning is you have to know what it is you're rejecting before you reject it. Otherwise, you might find yourself rejecting something that is not the Christian faith. You think it is, but it's not. It's not what Jesus would teach. It's not what Jesus has done and said. You may be rejecting some Discovery Channel YouTube form. It's not right. So do the thinking for yourself. Go back to the primary sources, which is the, the Bible, the Bible itself. At least be clear what you're rejecting before you do that. And, and, and we've got a few uh, things that we're developing here at Foundation Church that will help you in that. Um, David's already, sorry, Neil's already mentioned the Discipleship Project reading plan. Um, that's, that's really uh, uh, where we read some uh, sections of the Bible together as a church um, on our, in our own time. And, uh, and then if, if you wish, there's a, there's a sort of a WhatsApp group that you can join just to sort of uh, share a standout insight every day. Um, and so you're very welcome to join one of those. If you don't wish to join that but do want to do the readings, there are a few sheets at the back. Um, also, um, if you go to our website, foundationchurchbelfast.com, forward slash, I think it's the Discipleship Project. I'll put the link out on our Facebook um, during the week. But um, again, you can click on that and see, see the readings and join us in that. So there's that option. Um, in the new year as well, we're going to be uh, running a, um, a sort of a, I suppose, a crash course, Christianity crash course, course, um, uh, either Alpha or three, two, one Gospel or something along those lines, just taking us right back to the beginning. So again, just keep an eye out for that. Three reasons that people reject Christianity. The first are the skeptics. Take up and read. That's my advice. The second group then um, are quite different. These are the self-righteous. Let me read to you. Let's read together in verse 13 through uh, to, I don't know, 16. They brought to the Pharisees, another group, the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. These aren't the skeptics who couldn't believe. 
these are the self-righteous who wouldn't believe. Um, this happened on a Sabbath. An extraordinarily, extraordinary amount of Jesus' um, healings took place on a Sabbath. That's not a surprise. He did that on purpose. Um, what is the problem? Well, according to these Pharisees, uh, these religious um, uh, fundamentalists, I suppose we could call them, but, but they were very, very, very committed to living out their religion, um, very impressive. Um, but for them, making mud and healing somebody was deemed to be work. And if you are a devoted follower of God, a very, very religious person, you would not do any work on the Sabbath. That was strictly against God's law, as they would have it, and it was strictly condemned. Um, and so therefore, in their estimation, Jesus was a lawbreaker. He was a bad guy because he was doing work on the Sabbath. And if you love God, then you do no work on the Sabbath. Now, just to be clear, this was not an express teaching in the Bible that Jesus was going against, not at all. Uh, um, what what, what, what uh, got the Pharisees um, upset was their traditions. Um, their traditions held that if God says we shouldn't do any work, then therefore um, the, the lame man who's just been healed can't pick up his mat. The blind man who's just been healed can't, you know, can't wash, can't have mud put on his eyes, and so forth. It was just ridiculous. In fact, Jesus says elsewhere, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. I came to live it in your place so that my perfect righteousness is, is given to you. Anyway, that's another sermon. Um, but the, the religious leaders here could not, would not accept it. They, it's easier for them to see Jesus as the sinner, as a, as, a, as, a, as a troublemaker, as a lawbreaker. It is easier to see him as that rather than face the implications of what he's saying and doing. In verse 16, it says, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So for, for them, unlike the skeptics, it's not the facts that are in question. It's the interpretation that they're haggling about. It's what it means. So they wouldn't believe. They, they deliberately suppressed what was obvious from the data. These are religious Pharisees that we're dealing with here in verse 13, and we're calling them self-righteous. Why are we calling them the self-righteous? Well, they were individuals, as we've been saying, that have been committed to the Jewish law, let's just say to the nth degree. You, know, you or I or ordinary people could never achieve uh, the level of, of perfection that they were going for when it comes to all these laws that they were trying to keep, all these boxes they were trying to tick. No one was more committed to religion than they were. Every law, every tradition, and they were famous for it. However, in their heart of hearts, as the Apostle Paul goes on to teach, they were trying to win God's favor by their religious law-keeping. Probably following on from that, they were trying to achieve the approval of people who would think well of them, being so holy and so righteous. The idea was that when God saw how committed these people were and how zealous they were and how obedient they were to him, that God would therefore come and visit them, he would bless them, and, and he would come in power, he would reinstate the kingdom of Israel, and this would all be achieved, they thought, through their law-keeping, through living moral lives, through appeasing God, through keeping him happy. 
self-righteous. And so then, imagine, enter Jesus into their uh, landscape. Jesus became very quickly this popular teacher, this powerful uh, miracle worker. And, and as, we, as we see in the Gospels, he drew crowds. It says people were amazed by his teaching. He taught as one who had authority, not as their religious leaders. And here we have a Jewish rabbi who does works on the Sabbath. We see him mixing with sinners, touching outcasts. He did all the wrong things. You're supposed to stay away from those people, thought the Pharisees. Not go to them. Jesus was a profound challenge to the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. He made them deeply uncomfortable. Because what was happening, Jesus was challenging their reward system. He, he, he came and said, that's not how God is at all. God is a God of grace. He gives you favor when you don't deserve it. And for someone who is doing their best to earn God's favor by being a good boy and a good girl, that is not good news because you're trying so hard. Jesus comes and threatens, in other words, to deconstruct their carefully built traditions. And they absolutely hated it. They thought that we were in a right standing with God. And here comes this man who has this great power, this great authority. He's not part of their system. And he can break everything that we've worked so hard to achieve. And I think then, coming into today again, and, and, and thinking about our own context... Um, unlike the skeptics, I think that we have a lot of people also who would reject Jesus, not on the basis of facts, but because they don't like the implications of following him. Uh, the real Jesus, as the Pharisees have figured out here, will challenge our carefully constructed systems, our, our lives, uh, and what our lives are built upon. And I think this can apply equally to those of us who are from a religious background, as well as those of us who are from a non-religious background, an irreligious background, so to speak. Um, both can actually become as self-righteous as these Pharisees in this story, believe it or not. It doesn't just take religion to achieve that. Um, both, therefore, will find Jesus very uncomfortable. Uh, religious people, you see, will use their religious practices to feel good about themselves and to earn favor with God. We, we, we can do that very easily, whether it's church attendance, engagement uh, with church events, charitable giving, praying. Uh, people can use these things in and of themselves to earn favor with God. The more I do this, the more favor I build up. That's what we say. But it's not just the religious people who have this problem. Non-religious people can do the same thing as well by using anything to achieve self-righteousness. Uh, feeling good about themselves, looking good in the eyes of others, and if they profess a God, being good in his sight. And so non-religious people equally can use other practices and behaviors as a measuring stick, whether it's just simply good living, whether it's uh, being an activist, uh, activist for a certain cause, uh, whether it's a political thing or whether it's your intellectual achievements, pretty much anything can be used to achieve self-righteousness of the Pharisees. getting our significance from our good behavior and good performance. But the problem is, and you'll know this if you know someone who's like this, it doesn't produce nice people. Um, Self-righteousness, 
will drive you down one of two roads. It'll either make you hard and loveless and arrogant because you're better than other people, because you've achieved more or done more or lived a better life than other people, or it'll push you down the other road of being so anxious and so beat up and so frustrated because you can't live up to the thing that you're trying to live up to. It's just elusive. And so it crushes you to the ground. Either way, you're not exactly living your best life now by trying to achieve it on your own. What this group needs, the self-righteous, is not transformational knowledge like the skeptics. This group needs humility. Skeptics need an open mind. The self-righteous need an open heart. Skeptics need to be informed by the gospel of Jesus. The self-righteous need to be melted by the gospel of Jesus. The heart softened, thawed out, as it were, when they look at him. One group needs the facts of Jesus. The second group needs the love of Jesus. The self-righteous. The third group, then, that have an opinion on all this, the third reason why people don't <clears throat> follow Jesus, rejecting him, are because they are scared. We don't need to under... Uh, uh, we, this is a really key one, actually. Uh, verses 20 to 23. Read, read with me. His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But... How he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And then it says in brackets, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. It's not that they couldn't believe the facts that they're showing them there, or that they wouldn't believe them, According to those parents, they shouldn't believe in Jesus, at least in their estimation. They agreed that this was their son, of course, and that he was blind and now he can see, so they've got the facts straight. They also seem to believe, it says in verse 22, um, probably somewhere secretly in their hearts, that Jesus is the Christ. But they knew that if they went public with that knowledge, bad things would happen to them. They were afraid, scared to follow Jesus, afraid to go public. Where does this fear come from? Well, in verse 22, it says that um, if you are, according to, according to the, the reports, if you are confessing Jesus to be the Christ, you would be put out of the synagogue. You and I today might think to ourselves, that's not such a big deal. Um, if you're put out of church, you'll probably be like, and whatever, and they just will wander off to another one or go nowhere. That's, that's possibly what we'll do. Just throw their head up, as we say. Not a big deal. But, but for uh, the people in this context, in the ancient Near East at that time, being a part of the synagogue was an expression of being a member of the community. Uh, if, if, if you like, your very life was tied up with your religion. Um, and so to be put out of the synagogue was effectively to be treated as an outsider, to be excluded I mean, who is not allowed into the synagogue was people who are not Jews, not the people of God. And, and so therefore, if you're put out of that, um, the, the, there, is, there is a black mark that hangs around you for the rest of your life. You are not one of us. You've, you've been kicked out of the synagogue. 
You will lose your status. You will lose your face. You will lose your reputation. Um, there's quite possibly the fear of loss of your family. as They look at you and think, what have you done to be thrown out of the synagogue? Your friends uh, will, will disappear, your social circles, probably your source of income, and no one's going to buy anything from your stall because you've been kicked out of the synagogue. All of this is a price too high to pay, too risky. The loss of influence was too great, so they kept quiet. We don't know. You should ask him. He can speak for himself. They told themselves that we shouldn't believe. It's too dangerous. So this is the third reason, then, that people reject Christianity. It's fear. You sometimes hear people talk about FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. Fear of, and in our context, that's fear of losing, uh, I suppose, social connections, turning down options. Um, uh, you know, um, if, if, we, if we declare ourselves, if we commit to one source of action, uh, then we're shutting the door to other potentially uh, joyful experiences or whatever it might be. So fear of missing out. And we, we just start panicking. We don't, I don't want to miss out. I don't want to lose the joy in this particular thing or this fun thing here. So, I, you know, it's fear. And, and, and fear prevents a lot of people from coming to faith in Christ. Much like the parents of this blind man. Fear that we would lose respect in our community, whatever community we're a part of, whatever circles we, we move in. Uh, maybe we fear losing reputation in our workplace, returning into one of those religious types. Maybe we fear losing the right to self-determination, that I quite like living my life as I am doing, and, and therefore my fear is if I follow Jesus, then I can't do these things that I really enjoy, because I know he'll be angry with me. So we fear that. Many, many fears keep people coming to faith in Christ. Uh, we're not really at this stage living as a society or in a land where people are being persecuted uh, for their faith. Perhaps it's coming in different ways. Um, but, you know, friends, brothers and sisters, churches in other countries and other societies who do feel persecution, uh, who, who will sense real loss or even physical violence um, if they uh, go public with faith in Christ, that sense of fear is a, real, is a real thing, and we can't minimize that. But for this group of people, we must count the cost. Following Jesus is no walk in the park. In some sense, life does get more difficult when you come to Christ. And we can't undermine that. But life gets way, way better as well, just to be clear. But at the central, I suppose, call of the gospel, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. And what he's saying is you have to die to yourself if you want to live for Jesus. And for many people, that's too much for them. They, they don't count the cost. And they end up walking away. They fear loss rather than gain. So for this group of people, it's not about knowledge, not about humility, per se. What they need is courage. They need to see that what we gain in Jesus when we come to faith in him far outweighs 
whatever loss you may think you will have or actually have. You need courage. There's a book that was written a few years ago by Ed Welsh. The title is very instructive. When people are big and God is small. Fear. Worry too much about what people think of us. And not worrying, I suppose, of being concerned with what God thinks of us. So is this the stage where you are? You understand about the gospel, about Jesus, maybe even in the secret place in your heart of hearts, you believe it. But you're stuck at the stage of going public, of saying it out loud to yourself, let alone to those in your family circles and beyond. One of the chief ways that we overcome this fear is by filling a big tank of water and plunging people into it when they say publicly in the church, I believe in Jesus and he saved me and look at what he's done to me. So if you're interested in going public in your faith, um, we would love to be filling up the baptistry a lot more regularly, more than once a year, twice a year, three times a year, once a month, people declaring their faith in Jesus. Love to do that. Talk to me at the end. Get it sorted. So what do you say then? There's these three here. Three groups. The self-righteous, the skeptic, uh, the scared, Later, let's bring him back in again. The blind man meets with Jesus. I don't know if it's on your sheet, actually. Is it on your sheet? Um, Verse 35. Yeah, great. Jesus heard that they cast him out. He wasn't afraid. They cast him out of the synagogue. And having found him, it says, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He, that is the blind man, answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. See, the blind man saw something in Jesus beyond his ability to work a really great miracle. The blind man realized, and he's not blind anymore, but he realized that the miracle that he had experienced pointed to something far greater, something even more profound. He realized that it was pointing to something far more wonderful and far more amazing than dead eyes becoming alive again. Because in this story, we see Jesus, in order to heal the man, Jesus bent down and he got into the dust and he made mud. And from the dust, he brought life. He restored this man's sight. He healed him. And here's the thing, that is a picture of the good news. That is a picture of the gospel. Because in the gospel, Jesus went down into the dust. Jesus Jesus lived a sinless life. He died this unjust death. He took the sins of all of you, all, all of his people, on himself. And he took them down into the dust when he went to the cross and died. He, he, He died and was buried from dust to dust. That's what we say at funerals, isn't it? But from the dust, here's the good news. From the dust came life. Just as life came from the dust and the mud placed on this man's eyes, so too, when Jesus rose from the dust, he rose to life. And that's life that is indestructible. Because once you've cheated death for the first time, there's no death after that. You've beat it. 
It's an enemy that has been destroyed. Where, O death, is your sting? That's what the apostle says later on. He rose to indestructible life. That's the gospel. Jesus took your sins into the dust so that you can be freed and and rise from the dust with him to share in his indestructible life. That is yours through faith in Jesus. Not through your good works and how good you were yesterday. But through faith and trust in Jesus and his ability to save you. That's why the blind man worshipped Jesus, it says there. Because he got it, it clicked. He saw what the miracle pointed to. And Jesus here this morning, by his spirit, is, is giving you, applying to you the mud, if you like, of salvation. He does it today. He's still in the business of giving life, raising you up from the dust. So let me put it very bluntly and directly. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That was Jesus' question to the blind guy. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in me? Says Jesus, do you you see what I've done for you? Do you see what it means for you? But when you see what Jesus did for you in the gospel, you will understand the facts. It'll open your mind. It will release you from self-righteousness. And it will grow you in courage. You, You will say to yourself, if Jesus was willing to go to the dust for me, I will cling to him and not myself and not my systems and not my good behaviors because those things just land me in the dust. Jesus will lift me up into life. When you look at him, it will humble you because you'll realize that the king of the heavens came down and got dirty so that you might be made clean. When you look at him in the gospel and see what he did, you will grow in this courage because you will say to yourself that nothing formed against me shall last. No price will be too great. Instead, you will live for him with all that you have. There's no corner of your heart that you cannot turn over to God. Every breath we've been singing it, that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. There's another old chorus that you may have sung in the past if you're from a church background. I think it just perfectly sums up what we're saying here. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray.